0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Certainty in all the uncertainty by Pastor Sean Wood.
1: Father, thank you this morning that you are speaking to us all the time. And I just pray that you would open both our ears and our hearts to hear from you this morning. Lord, your word is living and active, and may that be the case inside of each and every one of us. We ask in your wonderful name. Amen. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, um, we, uh, last year I did a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, but today we will run through overview very quickly. But uh, many, many uh, theologians and many scholars and many preachers say, you know what, uh, Ecclesiastes, 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes isn't worth anything, don't worry about it. It's, it's just the ramblings of a pessimistic kind of guy, but there's some beautiful, beautiful truth in the book of Ecclesiastes. I love how uh, the writer has unpacked and lifts the lid on some of uh, the things in our lives. We, we live in uncertain times, amen? I mean, we don't like to agree to that, but we do live in uncertain times. We, uh, who knows the... Um, the madman in North Korea could push the button on a nuclear bomb tomorrow and what happens after that, we don't know. Uh, When you've got people leading countries um, somewhat like uh, we do have, anything could happen tomorrow. And we do live in uncertain times and uh, people uh, of all ages and all generations for many years have tried to find a certainty in life And I love how the writer of Ecclesiastes exposes that journey. We live in times when people are looking for meaning and purpose in life. So many people of all ages get to a point in their lives when they say, you know what, there has to be more to life than this. And I believe God prompts people to come to that point. But... There's a book by a guy by the name of Albert Camus, and I actually haven't read the entire book. I get a rough idea. Albert Camus, many, many years ago, wrote a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. I don't know if anybody's heard of it. It's really not that important. It's a philosophical work uh, which exposes and explores uh, the meaning and the purpose of life. And he does so, as he concludes, by using a Greek mythological character by the name of Sisyphus. And uh, to paraphrase uh, the whole story, Sisyphus is a celestial being who is caught trading secrets with men. That's the story of Sisyphus. It's it's of no application really at all. But uh, he, he is caught trading secrets with men and is then condemned for the rest of his days to roll a rock up the mountain. And every day, just as he's reaching the top of the mountain, the rock falls all the way back down to the bottom, and the next day he has to repeat the process. Sounds like a stupid myth. Sounds like the Greeks had too much time in their hands and they drank far too much wine. Yes, they did. But Albert Camus, beautifully in his philosophical work, exposes that in reality, if we stop long enough and have a look, so many people live their lives just like Sisyphus. We don't like to lift the lid on this, but... Let's have a look at life in general. For most of us here in Australia, we conform to what culture tells us we should do. It's the right thing and living a good life looks like you get up in the morning and you have your wheat bix and you go to work, you kiss your wife as you walk out the door, not this weekend because she's away at the ladies retreat, but you kiss your wife as you're walking out the door and you go to work, you come home, you have tea, you watch telly, you go to bed, you get up the next morning and you do all that all over again. And you go through your life and uh, it sounds a little bit like we're pushing a rock uphill. And the next morning when we wake up, we repeat the process. And the next morning when we wake up, we repeat the process. And every single one of us are working towards that golden time, aren't we? We're all looking... Financial planners have made a business out of this. We're we're all working towards the time when we reach 65. And these are the golden years when you get to sit back and do whatever you want and and relax. You've worked hard, enjoy your life. But for many people that get to 65 or 70 years of age, they realise, hang on a second, I'm actually not healthy enough to do what I want to do anyway. And that is, of course, if you're fortunate enough to make it to 65 or 70. And Neil, you're a long way off it, we know, brother, but you'll get there. But the truth of the matter is, so many people like Albert Camus look at our general life here in Western society and everywhere and say, you know what, it just looks like, it just looks like Sisyphus. It looks like every day we just push a rock up the top and just about when we're about to reach the top, it rolls back down to the bottom and we repeat the process. And if we pause long enough, surely most people got asked to ask the question, there's got to be more to life than this. Life has to be about more than this. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is a man by the name of Solomon. Solomon, we all know, was the son of King David And he is actually, Ecclesiastes is the gathered ones, or Ecclesia is the gathered ones, it's the church, and uh, this is a message by a preacher. It is actually in the exact format of a sermon. It it starts off with the beginning, it has a great middle, Uh, some people consider that to be ramblings, but then it finishes beautifully. And the conclusion, if if you get nothing from the book of Ecclesiastes, then at least get the conclusion. But uh, Solomon... Uh, writes a message that he has for the people. And the message he starts off with in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, all is vanity. Okay, great sermon. Everyone's packing up their bat and ball. Great sermon. Pastor, we're out. If this is your message, uh, whatever happened to healthy, wealthy and wise, whatever happened to a bed of roses, whatever happened to getting everything my own way, this is not how uh, anybody should be starting a message, Solomon. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. He wants to expose and lift the lid. You ever ever walked into a room, and as a cleaner, I did this many times, you ever walked into a room and you could smell an odour, and you know it's either coming from the fridge or one of the bins, but no one's game enough to lift the lid and find out what it is that actually smells. Most of us live life like that. Solomon, he says, you know what? I want to stop for long enough to lift the lid and actually expose what's going on here. And he says, "All is vanity of vanities." Verse two says the preacher, "Vanity of vanities, all is vanity." And that word, vanity, in the Hebrew, is hevel, and the word hevel is basically means smoke or vapor. And what the preacher wants us to know is. Uh, he wants us right off the bat to know, you know what, life is like a smoke and it's like a vapour. It comes and rolls in and then it disappears just as quickly as it comes. Your life of 70 to 90 years in God's eyes is barely a blink. To us it seems like forever, to God he barely gets time to blink and you're, you're here and gone. But not only that, the, we're going to see that the preacher, as he works his way through, he says, this, this vanity, this hevel, we try to grab hold of life. We, we think it's solid. We think that it has a firm basis. But at the end of the day, it's just like smoke. There's nothing you can actually grab hold of. There's nothing that you can build your life on. There is nothing that is tangible that you can grab hold of. There's no guarantees in this life. Anybody ever work that out? Been around for five minutes, you'll realise life offers nobody any guarantees. I've only been a pastor for 3.2 nanoseconds, but in that short period of time, I've had the privilege of, of walking with many people. I've, I've spoken with people that are now, that said, you know, myself and my partner, we'd built a life together, but life offers no guarantees and now I'm here on my own. There are, I've known some of the healthiest people that have eaten well and exercised well and have contracted cancer because life offers no guarantees. Or does life offer guarantees? The preacher says all oh, this vanity. Life is like a vapor and a smoke. You try to build your life on it. So what does he do about it? As, he, as we work our way through chapter one, you will see that he says things like, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is never not full. You ever notice that? It keeps raining, uh, rivers run to the sea, but it's never full. Uh, we think, we, have, we live under an illusion that the preacher begins to expose his, at the end of the day, he's saying, generations come, generations go. Kings come, kings go. At the end of the day, three generations from now, nobody will know your name. He says, you know what, nothing changes, everything's the same. If we backtrack many thousands of years to the time of Solomon, what we find as the problem of the human heart hasn't changed. It just fleshes itself out in different ways today as it did then. We still have pride, selfishness and ambition all wrapped up in what people do back in the time of Solomon as we do now. We still have people looking for the same purpose and meaning in a life that is shallow and empty and has no form. So Solomon says, I'm going to do something about it. And this guy should have been able to. Oh, if you transferred Solomon to today, Donald Trump looks like a puppy when it comes to wealth. This guy was astronomically wealthy. I believe it was Hezekiah who comes after him and is foolish enough to show Babylon the treasures that Israel had accumulated. And Babylon sows a seed, I'm coming after the treasure. But Solomon had amassed great wealth. He had wives and concubines. I mean, one's enough, guys, right? But this guy, had, this guy had wives and concubines. He had. We're going to see that he had a plethora. This guy didn't lack anything. And he says, I have all the resources and all the means to explore all that you're trying to base your life on. And let's have a look at what he found out. He says, I applied my heart. The preacher Solomon says, I applied my heart. He, he wants to lift the lid on what is going on. And he begins, if we come to chapter two, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. And as we read through, if I pick it up at verse four, have a listen to some of the stuff that Solomon has done. He says, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself and made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He had singers, men and women. Have a listen to the list. But have a listen to how often we read the words, I made. I built. I had accumulated. Uh, In Western society, it's he with the most toys wins, right? It's like garages I have noticed in Queensland aren't for parking your car, it's for storing all of your junk. I have neighbours whose house I drive past, you can't see the walls or the roof for the stuff they have piled in their garages and one of them has two shipping containers in the backyard. I want to make you a small bet, I bet you he doesn't know actually what's in those containers. He with the most toys wins, is that what's going on here? Solomon says, I've got all of the greatest possessions you could want. I've I've accumulated treasure beyond measure. Now, if you're hoarding up fishing gear, God bless you. But apart from that, (laughs) what is it all worth? He says... He says I've amassed all of this, but he found a dirty gray big secret. He 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 had built the greatest vineyards. He he had built astronomical buildings. You know, we we do this the same today. We we we're all about owning houses and, and what cars we drive and, and what position we hold. This guy had great power. This guy had a reputation that flowed into the countries around him, and so queens from other countries would come and seek wisdom from him. This guy had enormous reputation and social standing, but he found one thing to be enormously the case with everything of this world. So often, satisfaction is sold separately. What he found is, let's read on. Verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, he found all was empty. All was vanity. It was a striving after the wind. You ever chased after the wind? Good luck. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. If we jump over to chapter 5, down to verse 10, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. What Solomon found was, you know what, I've built some of the greatest buildings, I've got all the beautiful gardens, I've got all these slaves doing all of my work, and I found something to be astronomically true. doesn't matter what I've got, satisfaction is sold separately. They don't actually satisfy doesn't satisfy. He found himself coming up empty. It sounds a little bit like some people I speak to outside of these walls on a daily basis. These guys are like, a lot of people today are turning around going, you know what, I've done quite well in life and I'm sure some of us even know some of these people. I have done. I call them the up and outs. Guys that reach the top of the mountain and go, you know what, the view's not what I thought it was going to be. I don't know if anybody's ever seen a movie called Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor is actually a true story about four Navy SEALs that in Afghanistan they go after a target. I've I've spoken about this before. And an amazing true story, by the way, on how this guy survives. You should watch it, but don't watch it with your kids because it's pretty gory. But... These guys are sent, and the communications, before they go, the communications straight out are known that it's going to be bad. Uh, We're going to have dead spots of communication. Um, They communicate roughly in a few spots. Uh, They find the target, and they hunker down for a snooze before they go to complete the mission. And they come across some goat herders wandering through the hills, and they have a decision to make. Praise God, they actually made the right decision. Wrong for them, right decision. But uh, the decision was, that they tossed it up, should we just get rid of these guys? Because there was walkie-talkies in their pockets. They were definitely communicating to everybody back in the village. Do we just get rid of these guys? Do we tie them up and leave them here? Do we let them go? They decide, we're going to let them go. And they make that decision because they turn around behind them and they have a look at the summit of the mountain behind them. And they said, all we have to do is make it to the summit of that mountain. We will get communications. The choppers come in. We're out. We've got plenty of time. There was one problem. Immediately they let them go. The young guy runs into the village. And he alerts everybody in the village, that these four Navy SEALs up on the hill. And they make their way to the top of the summit. But the problem was it was only a ridge line. It wasn't the summit of the mountain. It's what they call a false summit. And they climbed all the way to the top and they realized when they got to that ridge line. And how much distance they had to make it to the summit of that mountain. They knew they were in trouble. They had nowhere near the amount of time they needed to get out. They were going to have to fight their way out. Amazing story. Three men die, one guy survives, and they're amazing. But here's the analogy I want to draw from that. Do you know people live their lives today looking to a summit, looking to a peak of a mountain, thinking, if I can just climb there, life is all about reaching that summit. And every single person that gets there arrives at the top and says, this is only a ridgeline. And they find that they're just as empty and the view's not what they thought it was. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York and he has a, a, a very good friend that works amongst people in Hollywood. And she, said there's a, she tells the story to Tim Keller of how, she says, the saddest thing I see is all these people come to Hollywood looking for their break. He said she says they're working hard. They, she owns a restaurant close to Hollywood. And she says they come in and they're working hard and, and they're always waiting for that next break. And she said the saddest day is when they get it. She said because when they, when they get that break, everything they've worked for and everything they've been thinking was going to be all the answers to all their problems in their life, uh, they finally find out, you know, this isn't as fantastic as I thought. And that one of my favourite actors only a few years ago Prove that to the world when he took his own life, and that was Robin Williams. Robin Williams was a man that spent his life making other people laugh. He looked like one of the most happiest, joyous people you've ever met, but he was deeply depressed. He had more money than most of us in this room will ever have the privilege of counting. He had uh, fantastic relationships, so it appeared on the outside. But behind closed doors, he's a man that tried to commit suicide previous to the time when he actually attempted. Because he got to the top of the mountain and said, you know what, I'm as empty as I was at the bottom now that I'm at the top. And the only problem is I've got no more summits to look for. That's the problem. They climb to the top of the mountain and go, I've got nowhere else to climb. I thought this was it, but I'm just as empty. What am I going to fill this with? And that's what Solomon finds here. He says, you know what? Satisfaction is sold separately. I've, I've found all the pleasures. So what, so what guarantees can we find in life? Surely there's some guarantees. Well, he keeps going. Now, what about living wisely? Uh, Solomon says, what about uh, uh, wisdom and living wisely? And as we read on in verse 2, chapter 12, we can go down and read that he decides I'm going to explore wisdom and folly. You know, uh, surely there's some guarantees to be found in living wisely. Surely if I live wisely, then I will advance in life. And if I'm wise with my money and if I'm wise with my health, I can live long years and find some guarantees in life. And he does find one thing, because this guy wrote the book of Proverbs, don't forget. And he says, you know what, there is benefit in living wisely. Have a listen to his words. And yet, I hang on, sorry, verse, verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And what he's saying there is, those who are foolish and, and go through life haphazardly, there's definitely that they experience problems that they bring upon themselves. It's like they're walking through life, stumbling in the dark. And for those that try to live wisely, it's like you've got your eyes in your head and you're having a look at life. But he found something that was a problem, even with wisdom. Maybe, maybe if I'm just smarter, maybe if I study more courses, maybe if I get a few more letters at the end of my name, surely that will give me some guarantees in life. But uh, it would turn out that uh, what Solomon found was whether you're wise or whether you're foolish Uh, If we keep reading that verse, verse 14, it says, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Wise people die at a young age. Have you ever noticed that? Foolish people live to their old age. What, What Solomon found was it doesn't matter how wise you are, and it doesn't matter how foolish you are, the same event happens to everybody and you can't find any guarantees. It begins to introduce the fact that there's, there's something that's pressing upon every single person that we can do nothing about and that is time and death. Do you know, I'm as guilty as this as the next person We live the entirety of our lives thinking that death won't happen to us. Because if we actually stop long enough to think, well, we are going to at some point, surely that would change the way we live today. We all think we're going to escape death. I, I, I used to smoke cigarettes. I, I, I'll confess, I used to love having a cigarette. This is a few, quite some years ago now. But I was only sharing with somebody, when you're a smoker, you manage to convince yourself you're going to be the only guy that's not going to get lung cancer. It's not going to happen to me I'm going to be fine. You managed to live your life in this little world. Same with other people with addictions. No, it won't happen to me. I can control it. I'm in charge here. I'm the only one that's going to miss all of the sickness. The evidence in our hospitals tell us something a little bit different. And we live life like these events aren't going to happen to us. But we live in Australia, so surely we can just work harder. Australians are considered to be some of the hardest workers on the planet. I can testify to that, by the way. When I was in the forestry, we had many backpackers. We had guys from Germany, guys from Japan, guys from uh, all over the globe. Uh, Great guys, worked hard, except for... uh, Don't take this the wrong way if Nicholas is here. Except for the French. Man, the French were lazy. And and all the English people said, amen, I know. I I saw (laughs) their... No hostility there at all. But even they would say, you guys have got a reputation for being hard workers when they came over and work with us. And surely we, can find, surely we can find all of our identity and, and all of the satisfaction we need in our work. Isn't it interesting how most of us wrap our identities up in what we do? What's the first question? If you meet somebody new, male or female, what's one of the first questions you ask them? What do you do with yourself? What do you do for crust? Well, I'm such and such. And it begins, we begin to understand more about their identity because we understand and we think that all of our identity is wrapped up in what we do. I get some amazing reactions when people ask me that question now. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Okay, thank you. Ta-da. But we have a philosophy that says if I work hard, if I, if I build much then I'll accumulate and I'll have great satisfaction. But Solomon found something even in all of that. It doesn't matter how much you work, it doesn't matter how much wealth you attain, uh, what it is that you're able to build or accumulate. Verse 21, he says, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And if you keep reading, he goes on and says, sometimes it's left to somebody you don't like. And when you're dead, what are you going to do about it? And this is for you, Deb. The message of the vanity of toil, this is for you. There's no meaning or satisfaction to be found in what it, So Solomon says, spend the inheritance, don't. He says, he says, whatever it is that you're building, whatever it is that you're accumulating, go ahead and spend it. And he actually says, what well, God has given you in this life, we think that we should, we should take a vow of poverty. That's not what Ecclesiastes teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The message of Ecclesiastes is, yes, enjoy what it is that God gives you, but you won't find satisfaction and enjoyment in those things. If you can find all of your satisfaction in God, then enjoy what it is that he gives you. If you have much, God bless you. If you don't have so much, God bless you. Enjoy what it is that God has given to you. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Spend the inheritance. Don't save it up for the kids. Give it to the church. (laughs) Did you get that one, Deb? I'll write that one down for you, Dom. As we work our way through, there's a couple other things we need to grab hold of from the book of Ecclesiastes that, uh, that Solomon grabbed hold of as well. And as we come to chapter 3, he found out something, and most of us here might be able to attest to this. you know life is seasonal? There are, there are seasons in life. In chapter 3, we see there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. What Solomon's trying to teach us is there is a time for everything and you don't actually have any control over time. You ever tried to press the pause button on life? I just want to press pause for a moment. And do you know time doesn't stop? You can press pause all you like. I've got wrinkles that I didn't have 20 years ago which tell me the clock hasn't stopped. Nobody said amen. Praise God for that. But life is rather seasonal and if we look just to the climate, we have... We have summers, we have autumns, we have winters and we have springs and so we do in our own life as well. These things are cyclic in our lives. We have, we have times of, of winter in our lives. There may even be people here today that are experiencing a winter today where you feel like everything is just cut back. And being removed, and there's a dying off in your life. But then comes the spring, and there's some new shoots that God brings into your life. And in summer, we get to enjoy the fruits of spring. But autumn is just around the corner, friends. And again, it goes around. And sometimes it goes around quicker for us than it does for others. Sometimes it doesn't. But life is very seasonal. And we have no control over time. Time will tick along. You will age. I know it's only a number for us to keep a record of how many candles to put on your cake, but you will age. Life is seasonal, so you've got to embrace it. But I love what else, and I think the entire book of Ecclesiastes actually hinges on this verse. If we come down to chapter three, verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in into man's heart. That's a beautiful, beautiful, profound verse because what the preacher is now saying is uh, as he has explored pleasure and as he has explored wisdom and as he has explored all that we do with work and all the treasure that we could accumulate, he says you guys are trying to base your life uh, and satisfy an inner longing that you will not satisfy until you meet God. Because he says, God has put eternity in everybody's heart. A Blaise Pascal, a 16th century mathematician. So mass is worth something for those. But he was also an apologist. Said some of the most beautiful words. He says, we all have within us a God-shaped hole in our hearts, which we try to cram full of everything else. We try to ram our career in there or we try to ram social standing and status in there and somebody unfriends us on Facebook and everything falls apart. But he says there's a God-shaped hole in our hearts that you will not fill and it will not be satisfied until God fills that hole. I meet people every day that are hungry and Every male in this room should put their hand up and agree to this, but have you ever got up in the middle of the night, walked out to the kitchen and grabbed a glass of milk and opened the fridge and stood there and thought, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want to eat? And you stand there and you look at a fridge full of food and you know inside of yourself, I'm hungry and there's a longing, but I don't know what it is on these shelves that I want. You know what Solomon's doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes? He says, you know what, guys, I'm going to open the fridge for you and I'm going to sample everything on the shelves. And that's what he's done. And now he's saying, everything you're trying to to fill that hunger and that longing with, (laughs) he said, there's only one thing. He said, it's not on the shelves, it's actually the fridge. And just like most males in this room, every single person spends their life staring into, an empty, into a fridge full of opportunities that we try to satisfy hunger with. God has placed eternity in each and every one of our hearts. If we jump over to chapter 9, we'll begin to see there's no guarantees in life. I like to call this the Bradbury principle. Everybody knows Stephen Bradbury. You want to know why? Not because he's an exceptional Olympian. Now, he's on Survivor at the moment, uh, Australian Survivor, and his story is, if you talk to him about when he won the gold medal for ice skating, he will tell you that he was positioned beautifully, uh, just ready to take the finish line. Fact of the matter was, he was positioned at the back of the queue, right at the end, and had these other three guys not fallen over, he wouldn't have even stood on the podium. But if you ever noticed in life, have a listen to this verse that uh, Solomon exposes, chapter 9, verse 11. He says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. (laughs) This guy knows that. The race is not to the swift, nor is the battle to the strong. The Germans found that out. Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the one with knowledge. But time and chance actually happened to them all. And on this particular day, time and chance happened to three men. One tripped, the other two fell over him. And just because Bradbury was so well positioned, miles behind them, he didn't get entangled. And in the last lap, he sweeps around the corner and win, he wins gold for Australia. What an Olympian. What Stephen Bradbury and what the Bradbury principle proves to all of us is this. There's no guarantees in this life, and there's no guarantees in this world. And what Ecclesiastes wants us to know, and what Solomon wants us to know, is the only gap place you're going to find any kind of guarantee is in God. And if you're going to build, we're going to get to that in a moment. We're going, to, we're going to get to the conclusion in a moment. He says, if you're going to build your life, don't build it on being an exceptional Olympian, because chances are you're not. Sports stars reach the end of their career in their 30s and they melt down because somebody's taken away my identity. Everything I was was wrapped up in being a footballer or this guy, a part-time ice skater. And now he's on telly doing Australian Survivor. And he should survive. If he can survive that, right, he should be able to survive anything. So I have a message, friends, as we bring it to a conclusion. The first one is this. Please understand that nobody in this room knows the fullness of the work of God. Have a listen to chapter 11, verse 5. It says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. I've had the blessed opportunity of holding four of my children in my hands and every time I do, I think this is a miracle. I'm not going to do a birds and bees thing here today because the ladies aren't here. So this isn't a birds and bees talk, but what a miracle. Who can tell me how a spirit, just like Ecclesiastes, who can tell me how a spirit comes to the bones in the womb? Who knows how that all happens? You can't explain that and you will never explain God. You will never fully understand probably all the seasons in your life. You'll never fully understand the moments in your life like the Garden of Gethsemane where God brings you to a place where you have to say, not my will, but yours be done. I want to give you two immutable truths here this morning. God exists and nobody in this room is him. He does not do what we tell him to do. We are meant to be doing What he tells us to do. Nobody can understand the work of God. There is absolute mystery in the work workings of God. But chapter eleven says Let's read the verses before. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. We have a saying, fly fishermen in Tasmania have a saying, if you are waiting for the perfect day to go fishing, you will never go fishing. And what Ecclesiastes is saying, if you're waiting for everything to be right, if you're waiting for everything to be perfect, if you're observing the wind, waiting for the right time, you'll never enjoy life, you'll never live life. And the message of chapter 11 is, cast your bread upon the waters. Go and live life. And trust that God has everything in control. But here's the end of the matter. And we've briefly ran our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. But the the end of the matter is found in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, after all has been heard. We've heard about how there is vanity in so many areas of life. We have heard how there's no guarantees in life. And now we can scream out to the preacher, what are we supposed to do? He says, well, the end of the matter has... After all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, very important part of this conclusion. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so many people, I hear Christian people saying, we've escaped judgment, brother. We're we're good. And yes, you have. And yes, you will be in eternity, but you will stand before the Creator and give an account. Every single person will give an account. Billy Graham will give an account to God. Adolf Hitler will give an account to God. Uh, The consequences of that will be vastly different for those two people, I assure you. But what God has entrusted and given to us, we will stand before Him and give an account. So the sum and the total matter of all things is this, says Solomon, Fear God and keep his commandments. Live in a relationship with God. And fear God is not uh, afraid of the dark kind of hiding from God. Uh, I, I've said this before, it's a reverential respect. It's, it's, it's a posture of life. Uh, the best way to describe it is uh, when, you, when you hold a baby in your hands, for example. Let's use that example who knows that you're very careful with how you hold the baby and you're very particular because why? Not because the baby has the potential to hurt you, but because you have the potential to hurt the child. It changes the way you treat that baby. And so what Solomon is saying is fearing God looks like a posture of life where it changes the way you treat God. In short, paraphrasing the book of Ecclesiastes, you could probably sum it up in one sentence. We do not know what the future holds. We do have the opportunity and the pleasure of knowing the one who holds the future. And the message of the Bible, the message of Christ was this. Trust God. He's in charge You just do your part, love God, love other people and trust him to take care of your life. Who knows whether you'll live 40 years? Who knows whether you'll live 80 years? Who knows what will happen? But just trust God. And if you're in relationship with God, who cares? Because you're in the right hands. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given each and every one of us the opportunity to be connected to you. In all of a life of uncertainty, Lord God, you are the certainty in this life. And Lord, I pray that hearts here would be thrust upon that certainty. Lord, may every single one of us find the fullest of our guarantees in you. Today, we thank you
0: and we ask for your blessing on each and every one. In your wonderful name. Amen. And his name is uh, Ahmed. Last Christmas, on Christmas Day, he took on national radio. And he spoke to the entire nation about the significance of Jesus coming to earth and the difference that that has made to his life. Can you imagine that? I mean, we rejoice because Scott Morrison spoke at the opening of uh, Hillsong the other day. Great. But here's a guy speaking to a nation of 120 million, all of them listening to him as he testifies about Jesus. In 1953, there were 660,000 believers in China. In 2008, the government representative said, well, we're not sure how many Christians there are now. We think it's about 130 million. And a recent Chinese demographer has calculated that the current rate of increase goes on. Then by the year 2030, the Christians may number 240 million. And President Xi doesn't realise that the more he pressures and persecutes, the faster they're going to grow. The power of the communist government of China is great. The oppression of Islamic governments is great. Also great and powerful is the seductive persuasion of capitalism and wealth. But greater than all of these combined is the power of Jesus. Every year I'm over in West Africa, in a country there which Islam has increased, by 100% in the last 10 years. And in one particular area, West Africa's voodoo has been the main religion. That's demons and animism and so forth. And Islam lays over the top of that. It doesn't deal with what's underneath. But I'm over there meeting with uh, former Muslim guys, teaching them how to make disciples and so forth. And recently, in a burst of zeal, they went out to a particular place. And they started to speak in this, village. In the middle of the village, there was this huge tree. <clears throat> they called it their idol tree because their main demon and his acolytes lived there with him. And as the Christians were preaching, the tree became very disturbed. And the local people noticed their tree was being upset. And so they went off to the police and, and uh, told the police, asked the police to come and get these Christians to be quiet. The police came and a as I'm listening to this story, which was a couple of weeks ago, I thought maybe they, maybe there was, they, they had instruction from Bob Brown, the Greens leader down in Tasmania, protect the tree. It's the poor tree is being disturbed. So the police came and asked the guys to desist. They, they moved away. But as they moved away, a bolt of lightning fell from the heavens, stripped the center out of the tree, lifted the whole thing out of the ground and smashed it down on the side. And uh, if the guys up the back can bring up that image for me, I hope, <laughs> so that you'll know what this is about. Uh, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But that is an example which mirrors what happened in 1 Kings 18 when it was Elijah up on the top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And the bolt of lightning comes down and burns the sacrifice. And that's exactly what God did in this occasion over there in West Africa. So the God of 1 Kings 18 is the God of 2019. We may not get that image up, but Don't worry about it. You'll just have to take my word for it. Just as it was with that man who was burned with 80 litres of petrol. That's reminiscent of Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Into the fire, the blazing furnace they go. And there with them is a fourth man walking and Nebuchadnezzar saw him. The son of man walking in there. The same thing today in today's world. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As we travel this road into the future, as I say, well, I was encouraged by the fact that Colonel Sanders, when he was 88, was a billionaire. I'm not sure what I want most, to live to 88 or to be a billionaire. I'll have either of them, actually. (laughs) But I may not be here in 35 years. But I know that there is a road to be traveled. And in the face of danger and death, what is to be our response? I would suggest we need to be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, And that area where they live was in today's Iraq. And to King Nebuchadnezzar they said this. We do not defend ourselves... If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us. But even if he does not, we will not serve other gods. So whether it's Daniel 3 or 1 Kings 18, still God is with us. Question, who's ready to prepare themselves to walk the Calvary road with me To where Jesus walked. The outcome may well be the same in every regard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of our brothers and sisters overseas in these countries where week by week they are hard pressed, they're starved, they're imprisoned, they're beheaded, they're separated, they're killed. They flee. Some go to other countries as refugees. And here we have this amazing opportunity of affluent, comfortable Australia. We are mindful of our Lord's words. That there, yes, will be the wars, the rumors of wars. There will be the earthquakes and the hatred and the gospel preached to all people. And we are almost at that point around the world. Therefore, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Firstly, that we'll be mindful and sensitive toward the needs of others where we can help, we will. Secondly, that when our time of testing comes, we will not resile, we will not withdraw, we will not pull back, but we will stand. Not with a line in the sand, but we will stand upon the rock Christ Jesus, and we will not be moved. Therefore, Lord, while we thank you for this beautiful new facility you've enabled these, my brothers and sisters here to have, now cause your spirit to flow mightily amongst them in the days to come that not a single believer will be lost because of pressure from this community here. May they remain strong, firm, and steadfast unto the end that Jesus will be glorified in Capalaba. Brisbane and around the nation and beyond. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at the Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today. And we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.